this is Dan Alonso, and this is History for Today, which is my podcast and uh, vlog about uh, really what I'm doing as a historian, uh, what I'm teaching, what I'm thinking, what I'm researching. Uh, today, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, work that I'm doing preparing for my U.S. History one course uh, this fall. So in preparation for writing my own uh, chapter and my own first week uh, lecture for U.S. History One uh, this week, I've been reading uh, the American Yop. And specifically, I've been reading chapter one, uh, which is titled Indigenous America, which is written principally by L.D. Burnett and uh, Ben Wright, along with a team of seven additional authors. The Yop is a very popular Open Educational Resource, or OER, uh, published by Stanford University. Uh, I've used it in uh, past uh, U.S. history surveys. It's been out for about a decade, and I'm now writing my own. So before I set about criticizing this text, I want to be very clear. I want to, I want to note that it is incredibly valuable that people are writing and are publishing open content under Creative Commons licenses, that anybody in the world can read and that any educator can use and adapt and remix for free. This is huge. It's a huge change in education. And people like the Stanford authors who donate their time and energy to a project like this should get huge props and mad respect. And they do. And I want to say, I love these people. But that doesn't mean that I need to agree with them about everything that they choose to focus on or that I have to agree with everything that they say. Uh, luckily, students have been annotating this chapter using hypothesis uh, since about 2015, it seems. Um, I'm going to try to use some of the things that they found noteworthy and some of the things that they bypassed to gain some insights, not only into um, what the authors seem to have done well and maybe what they didn't do quite so well, but also to understand what the students were drawn to and the ways that they understood this text. Um, and also whether they got the message that the authors intended, uh, or if not, what perhaps prevented them. Uh, so let's begin. Uh, the first heavily highlighted uh, statement in uh, this chapter of the text is uh, that, quote, Europeans called the Americas, quote unquote, the new world. But for millions of Native Americans they encountered, it was anything but. This isn't a bad way to start, since it's true that uh, following Amerigo Vespucci's popular book, Mundus Novus, which is Latin for New World, many Europeans did in fact call the Americas the New World. Um, more importantly, perhaps, Eurocentric historians since then have often written as if nothing much ever happened before Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of America, or at least nothing that matters in historical terms to the nations that became part of this New World. So in addition to being wide, wildly biased, this sentiment is, of course, inaccurate. The history of the continents, uh, of the continents themselves, including their flora and their fauna, their plants and animals, and of course, all of the people that lived on these continents all had an incredible impact on what happened 
when Europeans and Africans um, arrived in the Americas. Uh, the text then goes on to a section uh, devoted to uh, the first Americans, as they call them. Uh, it begins with a paragraph describing several native creation stories, which got a fair amount of student attention. Um, the stories are interesting in their way, and they show uh, a little bit about the similarities that all of these types of stories tend to have, including forming the first man out of clay, uh, and also the differences that uh, native stories have from some of the Western stories that we're familiar with. Uh, for example, it's an eagle that does the forming of the first man out of clay, and then the eagle goes ahead and makes the first woman out of a feather. So that has uh, a lot of interesting implications to unpack. I'm not really a cultural historian, I guess. Um, I don't see in a limited space that I would want to devote quite as much time to including uh, these details in such a short uh, synopsis. Um, after all, we're not going to talk about the creation myths of the Europeans who came. Um, but the next paragraph does move on to the Ice Age, which allowed humans to get to uh, the Americas via Beringia. Um, again, I'm going to expose my own interests and biases as an environmental historian here, but I think this is much more central to a survey course like this, and I don't think it's as well described as it could be. Uh, Beringia, for example, is described as a land bridge, uh, which is one of my particular pet peeves. Uh, as uh, people who have watched my YouTube uh, rant about that are aware. Um, and based on the comments, it seems like students uh, had some lingering questions. Um, responding to a mention of the glaciers, one student asked how much water um, had been trapped. Uh, well, the answer to that is enough to reduce sea levels by over 360 feet for thousands of years and to expose a landmass that was as wide as Alaska, again, for thousands, if not 10,000 or more years. So not a narrow temporary bridge. Uh, the detail would have been helpful, too, in, helpful, in helping uh, students understand the first uh, people in the Americas, and um, especially if they go on to explore um, the genetic diversity of these people. Um, the text does reflect some recent research, however. It mentions that uh, Monte Verde, uh, the archaeological site in Chile, uh, which showed uh, that people had reached the southern limits of the South American continent over 14,500 years ago. But the authors then muddy the water again by suggesting, uh, actually without evidence, that people may have come from, quote, many different points of origin, uh, end quote. And then it, they even refer back to the native creation myths as a possible origin story. Um, my objection to this is that, and maybe my objection should be a post of its own, and maybe I should hold off that post until after I get tenure. Uh, but suffice it to say that I have an issue with uh, us as historians pretending for the sake of cultural or political correctness that we give more credence to native mythology than we do to, say, Greek mythology. Um, does a responsible contemporary history of ancient Greece attribute historical causes to the actions of the gods, uh, even if the people at the time thought that what was happening was because of the gods' interference? 
Um, I don't think so. And on a more practical basis, I think this whole section seems um, to have been ignored by students, uh, possibly because of this kind of muddiness of uh, the theme. And uh, that's a shame because the story of the Beringian occupation is epic and is very important to later American history. Uh, the text then moves on to discuss early American agriculture. And this is helpful because history has for way too long credited the so-called Fertile Crescent with the invention of farming. Um, but the students were, asked, were left asking questions like, how did they get the maize? Um, and, and what did people eat before they began farming in the Americas? And this would have been a perfect opportunity to explain how uh, the people of what's now Mexico selectively bred teosinte, a native grass, into maize over countless generations. Uh, and that it was mostly, almost certainly, women who figured this out and did all the work. Uh, a number of other students wanted to know what the Americans ate, in addition to corn, beans, and uh, squash. Well, among other things, potatoes and manioc, or cassava, to name two of the other crops that became the top five staples that the world eats today, that Americans invented. Um, and then it wouldn't have hurt also to mention things like chili peppers, uh, tomatoes, cocoa. Right? The text uh, then makes another bid, I think, for cultural correctness uh, by saying that most Native Americans, and I'm quoting here, most Native Americans uh, did not neatly distinguish between the natural and the supernatural. Spiritual power permeated their world and was both tangible and accessible. Um, and one student actually responded to that by asking, what does accessible mean? Um, and then two other students tried to answer that question, uh, which is a great demonstration of um, the use of hypothesis and hypothesis real facility for conversation and social annotation. Uh, but it might have been useful for the text to give examples to support a claim like that. Uh, the rest of this section is a survey of places such as Pueblo Bonito and Cahokia, where large uh, native communities flourished. Uh, these descriptions don't seem to get a lot of student attention, um, although one student does take a moment to complain that this feels like the hundredth time that the author has mentioned uh, that there are a lot of languages uh, and wonders why that is. Um, another student astutely compares the statement uh, that the Lenape sachems uh, governed their communities with the people's consent to the ideas of the Enlightenment. Um, hopefully the text will return to this in uh, later chapters because there are other later examples of that, like the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, but it would have been useful to introduce that idea here. Um, Students uh, react to this section's conclusion by noting that uh, the natives have been unfairly depicted in earlier histories as savages. Uh, and that is obviously true. Uh, so from that perspective, the section has been successful in debunking those fallacies. Uh, the next section on the Europeans begins with a brief mention that Scandinavians reached the Americas first. Um, students seem to like this part, the idea of Leif Erikson and the Vikings coming. Uh, and I think it deserves more coverage, actually, especially uh, in that it creates an ongoing European knowledge uh, of 
places like the cod fisheries of the Grand Banks, which probably helped to contribute to Columbus's interest in sailing across the Atlantic and his suspicion that there was something to sail to. The text then jumps uh, to the Crusades, uh, which it credits with enriching Europe both in terms of wealth and in uh, terms of knowledge, um, and then talks about the investments of Prince Henry the Navigator, which the authors uh, say resulted in the Portuguese invention of the astrolabe and the caravel ship. Uh, this is a dramatic oversimplification. Both of these technologies have a long history that extends into the Muslim world and into Asia. Stern post rudders, after all, are invented by the Chinese. One student actually speculates, unfortunately, that, quote, this is the beginning of map making, unquote, and obviously it isn't. Uh, the text then moves on to sugar and slavery. Um, students seem to take from this passage uh, kind of a mixed message, uh, that slavery is bad, but also that the Africans did it to themselves first. One student's comment suggested um, that they had come to the conclusion that the Africans had, quote-unquote, invented slavery. Um, and then it was mostly afterwards the fault of the Portuguese. Um, and these statements are not entirely untrue. African cultures did use captive enemies as unfree labor in their societies, but they also often accepted those people and definitely the children and the descendants of those captives as full members of their societies. Uh, I don't think this coverage is particularly helpful in setting the scene for a later discussion of uh, the Atlantic slave trade. The story then arrives at Columbus's famous arrival in the Caribbean in 1492. Uh, the text thankfully does not perpetuate the myth that Columbus had set out to prove the world was round, uh, but it does still manage to portray the navigator as basically incompetent. Uh, Columbus is badly mistaken about the size of the globe, and he's lucky to have made it across the Atlantic without starving himself and his crew. Students wrote notes exactly like that. He got lucky, one of them said. Um, I can't help thinking that maybe the pendulum has swung a bit too far. I think the point of uh, focusing on and clarifying the story of Columbus is not really to turn him from a saint into a devil, but to recognize the complexity of people in the past and their contributions to history. The following paragraphs include a couple of very useful quotes uh, from Columbus and uh, Bartolome de los Casos. Um, which I think did a lot to bring a sense of immediacy to the story. Students commented on the peacefulness and even the sweetness of the Arawak uh, community and on the depravity of the European uh, reaction to them uh, and desire to enslave them. But the authors mentioned the depopulation of Hispaniola, which went from over 3 million people to none in, as they say, a few short years, uh, without explaining that most of the Arawak died of disease during the Columbian Exchange. Um, the text does go on to mention that diseases uh, killed, as they say, as much as 90% of the population. But students still seemed confused. One asked, what caused Europeans and African natives to carry such diseases? Uh, the answer, coevolution with domesticated animals that the Native Americans didn't have, would have been very easy to provide. Uh, and honestly, I would spend uh, more time and effort impressing on the students the significance of a series of pandemics, especially in this day and age, uh, a series of pandemics that killed nine out of 10 people across two continents. This changes everything. 
The text then moves on to uh, the Spanish conquest and to concepts like the encomienda. Uh, a brief account of the Aztec and Mayan civilizations suggests a comparison with the Spanish civilization that followed. Uh, although the Mayan civilization is said to have collapsed due to, quote, unsustainable agricultural practices, uh, end quote, this is a theory that has been popularized by Jared Diamond in his popular book, Collapse, uh, but certainly there are other possible explanations for the end of the Mayan civilization, uh, in which, in any case, focusing on its end uh, sort of detracts attention from its duration and its achievements. Uh, and then the Aztecs are described as, quote, militaristic migrants from northern Mexico, end quote. I'm a little bit concerned that both of these descriptions sort of insert a sense that these civilizations have end dates and that their end is kind of inevitable. Uh, the description of Cortez's uh, conquest of Tenochtitlan explains several of the high points of the conquest quite well. Um, I would add another sentence or so, though, on Doña Marina, uh, who is known as La Malinche. Um, one student actually asks how Cortez managed to recruit allies and why he, meaning Doña Maria, betrayed his people. Uh, this is one of the few moments when a female plays such a big role in the story. Uh, Doña Maria is a teenage girl who is given as um, a gift to Cortez when he arrives on the Mexican coast at Veracruz. And in addition to being his interpreter, she uh, bears him a couple of children, uh, probably not voluntarily. So this is an important story. And it's, a, it's an opportunity, as I said, to, um, to say something about the difficult choices faced by captives and by unfree people in this history. The passage concludes by explaining that after a two-year-long conflict aided by smallpox, a thousand European conquerors finally managed to defeat a million-person-strong empire. Uh, full marks for suggesting that the Spaniards would have been unsuccessful without the help of disease, because that's definitely true. Uh, but current estimates of the population of the Aztec heartland put the number much closer to 25 million than 1 million. And this again underscores the power of the Colombian exchange, which basically hollows out the entire Aztec world and kills over 20 million people within a century. The chapter concludes with a description of the caste-based uh, society of New Spain, uh, beginning with a statement that, quote, the Spanish tolerated and even supported interracial marriage, end quote. Um, while it is technically true that there was substantially more mixing of Europeans and natives in Spanish America, largely because so few Spanish women came to the colonies, uh, I'm concerned that framing this with these words is a bit anachronistic. 16th century Europeans did not have anywhere near the same understanding of race as we do. In large part, that's because of the changes that resulted in our culture based on the Atlantic slave trade itself. Uh, however, many students did get the idea when the authors described uh, limpieza de sangre, or sangre puro, pure blood, um, and the tables of hierarchy that became the, the basis of social order in the Spanish-American world. Uh, so to conclude, uh, I think this chapter does a pretty good job of introducing students uh, to the Americas before and during European first contact. Uh, this period is still well before most of the colonies began that were the direct forebears of the United States. Uh, and 
U.S. histories in the past have um, passed on it, have not talked about it, which it was unfortunate because it's important. And I suspect several of the themes that begin here will be repeated. At least I repeat them in my course. Uh, my criticisms are partly based on my own particular historical interests. Let me stress that. I'm much more committed to describing the Columbian Exchange in detail, for example, than to um, the cultural issues. And I'll probably not mention in my own text you know, the Lady of Guadalupe statue. Um, and partly uh, my criticisms are based on the benefit of having read the responses of the students in the annotations to get a better sense of what the students uh, seem to be getting and what they seem to be missing and what confuses them. I'm definitely going to use student responses to gauge my own text's effectiveness. I've done that in the past um, with pretty good success. And, um, and also I'd say that I realize that the critique that I've just produced of this YAP chapter uh, certainly paints a target on my own back. And my response to that is, bring it on. I consider this type of project to be uh, very iterative. So I'm fully expecting to revise the text based on what works and what doesn't. Uh, peer reviews, as well as student feedback, would be hugely valuable to me. And I hope to get engagement and uh, criticism uh, like this criticism that I have um, written for the YOP when I publish my own OER. So, I hope that was mildly interesting to people. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next time.